BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome back. This is part two of the Once We Dream Deep Dive with my friend, musician Jonathan Scovron. As a quick recap, in part one, we covered Jackson's narrative choices. We then went way down a rabbit hole about the need to revisit Lennon's perspective at that time, his view of McCartney, the Lennon-McCartney metaphorical marriage crisis, their attempt to repair it at this time, and how that impacted the band's dynamics. We touched upon George's predicament and his position in the band, as well as the differing creative approaches and how that created issues. We then contemplated the slightly odd nature of Yoko's presence and why she might have been there. And finally, we concluded that despite all these issues, the dynamics of the band were still incredibly positive and productive. So I guess now we're up to speed. Now let's jump into part two, where we're picking up is Jonathan and I had again returned to the subject of George leaving the group. So I guess that's all the information you need. Here we go. You know, I listened to a little bit more of the Peter Jackson interview uh, about the the scene. Remember, we were talking about the fact that Peter Jackson has taken some um, directorial (laughs) liberties in in terms of cutting it together to tell the story. And then, you know, listening to him, he said, like, look, I know that George was going through some issues at home. 
but he said, look, these were going on and George is sitting there and then, you know, Paul and John are in Paul and John's little bubble. And at some point he decides to leave, you know? And so it, it was interesting to hear that he did acknowledge that there were other things going on, you know, but those aren't represented. And I think that they are important that, like, first of all, I want to say, I don't feel sorry for George in that Patty left him because Patty left him apparently because George brought another woman into their home. To the house, yeah. So I'm kind of like, George, who was you know, it? Sh like, Charlotte, someone, Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, who knows what the real story is, but that's yeah, yeah, my yeah. understanding is that Patty decamped. And this was apparently not, George did have a tendency to just unilaterally make decisions and bring people home like the the Hari Krishnas or Chris O'Dell yeah, yeah. said that she was sent to, to go live with them and Patty wasn't even informed. And yeah. so I understand Patty doing this, you know, so let's not feel sorry for George on that. Account. No, 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 no. Except for the fact that one can understand that I'm sure that bothered him once she did leave. Yeah, well, and it's, it's upheaval, you know, like he's, it's his, his, you know, are they are they married at that point? Yeah, they yeah, are. yeah, yeah, they're married. Yeah. And then she comes back in Savile Row. So George is happier. And so that um, brings me to a topic that I'd love to address, which is this perception that things got so much better. Uh, when they got to Savile Row, which, you know, clearly there is a positive trajectory and clearly things did also get better at Savile Row. But I think that there's right now, there's sort of some accepted wisdoms that, oh my God, everything changed when they got there. And you and I have had some side conversations about there's a lot of things factoring into this, you know? And so what I'd like to do is talk about the differences between part one and part two, or the movement from Twickenham to, to uh, Savile Row. Uh, because first of all, I love part one. I, I think partly because it looks amazing. Yeah. I wish they had done it the opposite way around, started at Savile Row and then ended up at Twickenham because, you know, I know it wasn't the best place for them to uh, be creating. However, it looked fabulous when they were performing. Yeah. I really love all three episodes and for different reasons. I've seen them enough times right now to actually absolutely love them in different ways i feel like one everything looks beautiful it's fresh they're fresh there's kind of like this spark of things getting going in part two you really get into the weeds and you really get to watch the dynamics and then the third episode you get the momentum of like the excitement of building to the performance and then the performance so there's really you know really three different personalities yeah for yeah sure. but I love part one. Yeah. There's yeah. a reason why people do things in a sound, like in a studio, because, yeah, you know, you can have the cameras up and it, it just looked better. I find... Oh, it looked, uh, looks way better, part one. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And they they all, because they're a little bit, you're like the cameras aren't so in their face. They don't quite look so sweaty, you know, right. and greasy as they do sometimes in part two. And it's also darker, like the space yes. is darker. So the lighting is more, I think, more conducive to that sort of less natural look you know like a film than yeah yeah that's right usually <laughs> directors are like let's get a bunch of fluorescent lights yeah, in yeah, a really yeah, exactly. small room it's cream you yeah. know it's just like it's not the best for a cool looking film and i also like the fact that i, I know people always say like it really got going when they got to salvaro but i find there's so much chemistry already in part one yeah i agree now just put the caveat in that I have watched part one more than I've watched the other two. But um, I really think that there's a lot of overemphasis in the commentary yeah. 
on <laughs> the change from Twickenham to Savile Row, I think. And I, I still think that a lot of the original mythology is driving the new narrative, so to speak. Like, I think it's really hard for people to divorce themselves from what they've always understood about this period. You know, one of the examples of that is what you're saying is that this kind of idea that everything changed when they moved to Apple for the better. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the original mythology. Yeah. That's something yeah. we've always been told. Like, yes. That George uh, fixed it by you George know, left. Yeah, demands. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was cold Billy and dark and Billy yeah. came in and all that stuff. I yeah. mean, I do agree that Billy's presence makes a huge difference musically. I think what contributes to this perspective that things change radically when they go to Salvaro is actually the lunchroom conversation. You know, that it's quite dramatic the way that Peter Jackson has laid it out. And it's so unrepresentative of the actual conversation that they have. Yeah. But but he has that where it's a very weird, like, snippet of conversation that he includes yeah. that actually is not even between the two of them. This idea of we'll be playing when we're old was a response to something Ringo said. Like, it's the one part where I think that it was not a good representation. But I think that you know, they have this kind of dramatic conversation and then you go to Savile Row and it kind of makes you think things have changed. And so I, the first time I watched it, I was like, wow, things are very different. Now that I've watched it three times, I agree with you. It's so little. I don't think there's a change either. I think uh, the, the things to me that are misrepresented in the original narrative that is still, I think, as I said, driving the quote unquote new narrative is... So firstly, that George is happier, which personally, I don't see George in part one as being particularly unhappy, which is why for me, his walkout is still a little bit mysterious. But I think uh, I think that's one aspect of revelation for me is that actually uh, George seems okay to me in part one. Obviously, he's not because he walks out, so there's something there, but... But I don't see, a, uh, what I'm saying is I don't see a difference in his energy Me towards neither. the band in parts two and three when he comes back. I see it as being quite cohesive and quite, um, he seems totally invested to me in part one. I do yes, too. There's a, few, there's a few comments and like a few yeah. little snarky things that he says that to me is just George. It's just who he is. <laughs> I was very surprised at how invested George was right from the start. Like he comes in with an energy. Yeah, and for sure. I found like that was what was surprising to me having heard this I had a sense but this puts it better the the, the arc better in, into perspective and so you sort of see the evolution of the days better and I was very surprised at how full of energy and willing George was when he came and so I I love that you see there was a similar energy from part one to part two. I think he's a bit more comfortable with part two, but also Patty has left him in the first part and yeah. Patty is back. Yeah. And so it may not just be the situation with the Beatles that's impacting yeah. George. Well, I, I think as uh, for me, the only way to explain the George situation is to, to look at what's happening in his life outside of the Beatles, because I, yeah. I don't think it's specific only to what's happening within the Beatles. That doesn't, no. that doesn't read in the film, you know, no. unless there's a whole lot of stuff that's been edited out that we don't know about. And, it, and in fact, I actually think that Peter Jackson 
tries to, with his editing, um, tries to make it flow a little bit more in the way that he puts together this little montage just before George Wet walks out yes. that is very sort of, um, it's edited in a way to emphasize John and Paul kind of yes. getting off oh, on yeah. each other and George sort of sitting there watching uh, on the outer and um, and I think that looks to me like a bit of manipulative filmmaking as well. Like oh, I yeah, think, definitely. Um, I think it's deliberately put there as a precursor to George walking out, but it doesn't feel actually particularly natural. It's a very disjointed sequence where he's stuck a whole lot of different Paul and John moments together that are and actually And he repeats not, them. Yeah, that's right. There's some repeated shots um, and it's clearly just been created and stuck together to make it look like George is getting fed up with John and Paul being so involved with each other, which is, you know, I'm not saying there's not an element of truth to that. It may well be. I agree. The Lennon-McCartney thing is an issue, but this is what I was saying last time. I think George has a resting bitch face, honestly. Like it took me a while to be like, he's pissed off. And then I was like, I think that's just George's concentration face. I really do. I think that he looks kind of irritable when he's concentrating and that's, that's it. Like, and I think people can take that as George being surly, but I honestly don't think so. I think that's just what he looks like when he's thinking. Yeah. And also I think maybe John has like a resting, not bitch face, but like a resting, like vacant face. Like when he's concentrating, he just kind of looks, he's got like this blank expression on his face. Right. And the thing is that Paul has this super animated face all the time. Because right? so, he's got like, these eyebrows that go up exactly. to here, you know? That's right. So, like, the contrast, again, like, this, I think this feeds into, like, this idea of, like, Paul is, you know, yeah, yeah. doing everything and the others are just sitting there kind of doing nothing. But, but like, this kind of circles back to, like, the original conversation that we were having, which is, the like, the apparent differences, which I think are overblown between Twickenham and... Savile Row, yes. where yes. I, I think this is true of the whole thing. Like we've been fed this idea that everything changed when they moved yeah. to Savile Row, right? Yeah. And and it's it's actually like if you so I think most people watching it are looking for confirmation yes. of that. Oh yeah, look, everything changed. And, when they moved and again, to and again, you know, um, uh, Jackson sort of is playing into that the way yeah. that he did that. Yeah, he is. But no, I look you're at right. it, yeah. and I think, hang on a sec. The most of the time at Twickenham, to me, looks yeah. super productive, right? So productive. Like, like they started from nothing, right? Yes. And yes, when they go to Savile Row, they're a week and a bit into it. They've they've made well, that, progress. That... Obviously, you start the engine and it starts slowly, and then yeah. eventually there's momentum and it picks up. Of course, it picks up as time goes on and as they become more familiar with the songs and they come yep. more familiar with yep. each other's songs yep. and you know it's all yeah. it all starts moving quickly partly just because enough time has passed and they've done enough groundwork to actually right. get the wheels in motion properly right that's right especially where you're in a new space or you're starting off a project that's just the way they are like yeah. they are always like that 
And I mean, I, I said this in another conversation, but it's like for Magical Mystery Tour, Paul had his one piece of paper with the round circle and the pie, and that was yeah. kind of like the script. This time he just has like a round circle with TV in the middle. Like there is <laughs> no yeah. main plan for this one, yes. except for TV. Or should we do uh, hypocrites and write that bit? Do you know the other bits? My bits, I don't. Words are flowing loud. Sick and tired of rearing lines by seasick, narrow-minded shorts, hypocrite. All I want is the truth. We should change the heads, tell me some truth. I've had enough of reading lines by seasick, down hard-sided politicians. All I want is the truth. But clearly they've agreed to this in advance. You know, there's some conversations between John and Paul that suggest John was on board. And John does seem on board throughout they it. They must have been on board, though. They're there. like they're... they're there. They're all there, bought into it. I mean, we know, we know this happened anyway, but there's super strong evidence in the first few days that John and Paul have... Got been together working. and been yes. working together. Like they're talking, you know, give me some truth is half written, obviously yep. together at that point. Yeah. Like they're, you know, you can hear them actually reference yes, specific yes. past, Parts, you know, yeah. yeah, exactly like chords and stuff that yeah. the hell you were starting on D, you know, yeah, all that yeah. stuff. And clearly I've got a feeling has already been glued together with, with John's song before they turn up at Twickenham. So obviously they've, they, they, They've gone into this with some sort of mutually agreed upon vision. Right, right. Yeah. The engine's getting started. They don't know any of this stuff. You know, on the first day that George is like, oh, are you recording us all the time? Like they didn't plan this stuff. It's all just happening and they're getting used to it. And Paul, you know, he's talking to George Martin about this space not being good. And he's like, well, we'll just stay here for now. You know, like, okay, we're here. We don't know another alternative yet. Let's just start. Everything's just coming together. There was no definite plan. And not to mention the fact that Paul is as much of a uh, sort of wet blanket on all the different ideas that Michael Lindsay Hogg's coming up with in terms of location. Paul's dis- as dismissive of all of that as anybody else is. I think part of that, though, is out of respect for the, you know, I think he's protecting, you know, as a leader, I think he is protecting. He knows Ringo doesn't want to go. And so he's just like right from the yeah, start. No, he's like, you're right. Think- he specifically mentions if Ringo's, if Ringo doesn't go, we're not going. Yeah. But, um, but he's also like, pretty um curt with michael <laughs> Lindsay hogg a lot of the time about most things right because he just you know he doesn't he doesn't want to go and do some like i i get the feeling that it's not this like i've always had the impression of it was like paul just was up for doing whatever you know and doing this big kind of show and the other three were like no I'm not doing this I'm not doing this I'm not doing this and Paul was kind of the one against three trying to push the project forward and I I don't think that comes through I I do actually think that comes through I think it comes through in what Paul says like Paul makes that comment like I feel like I'm the only person who want you know whatever it is that he says in you know I can't remember the exact quote but 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 I don't see that. Like that's the only time I see it. Well, so you know, 
that was thinking about this, that Michael Lindsay Hogg has this view and he's doing it for the Beatles. And I think Paul and Michael Lindsay Hogg, they're the closest in terms of vision. You know, you can tell that Michael Lindsay Hogg is trying to deliver what he and Paul have discussed, which is he wants a payoff. You know, Paul wants a big bang and, and throughout, you can see consistently Paul wants this. The thing that Paul's not particularly on board with, which is something that I realized after a while is that Michael Lindsay Hogg keeps saying he wants it to be huge and for the world. Yeah. And all the Beatles are like, they're all a bit nervous about playing in front of people. Paul likes the idea of people wandering in while they're playing to get used to people. George is like, well, let's just, you know, do it in a small club. And then Michael Lindsay Hogg is like, but we should have the whole world. And it's like, Michael, listen to them. They're stressed, like stop making them more stressed. And it's got to be the best because I mean, the hearts of millions are with you, you know what I mean? Well, it's got to be the best, it can't That's how it goes every time we do anything, so it's going to be the best. I'm not saying that you owe it to the world or anything like that, but if it is going to be your last TV show, your only yeah, TV but show... you're only surmising, oh, I mean, just because we no, got a big grumpy. If, no, I am, but... We've been getting grumpy for the last 18 months. No, but I don't want you, I don't want you to be unhappy. I mean, because, yeah. like, I love you, like, I love you. And I, yeah. what I found when I was listening was what Paul is doing is he wants as big a payoff as Michael Lindsay Hogg, but in some ways his ideas are much more creative and non-traditional. Like Michael Lindsay Hogg is thinking big as in an amphitheater in Libya. Whereas Paul is like, well, let's do it in parliament and get arrested. Like that would be newsworthy and hookworthy. Yeah. And so I think Paul wants a big payoff. And you can see even before they go on the roof that all of a sudden he's worried, like he wants to do a full album somewhere. You know, he wants it to be big and spectacular. Michael Lindsay Hogg's only thinking visually spectacular, giant audience. I think Paul McCartney being more creative is thinking like, what would be something that would be really memorable and different, which is cool. And nobody else really throws any ideas. Like none of them throw out ideas. In some ways, I really, really understand George's perspective. And I really enjoyed George throughout this entire film. But I did understand from Paul, the person who's promoting this project and driving it, Paul is the lead driving this. You know, John eventually steps up and helps drive it. But George is tough. You know, there's the day that George comes in. And he's like, it's a funny kind of day. And then Michael Lindsay Hogg, of course, bumbles in and was like, we need to start thinking about the show. And everybody's like, damn, that's all we talk about, Michael. And then George immediately goes, I don't think we should do a show. And Paul goes, yeah, 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 right. Okay, okay, okay. You know, he knows he's dealing with somebody who is... Sensitive? I don't know what we want to call George. Yeah. I don't want to call him difficult. Just he's got his own needs, you know? Yeah. I, I, I don't dispute the fact that Paul is driving the bus. Like that's pretty obvious right from the start. But I, I just, I don't think that. I get I'm, what you're saying, Jonathan. This is not a Paul McCartney-led glory project where, yeah. you know, I think that's sort of the belief. And it's not. They're all on board. They're just not really contributing ideas. Yeah. Yeah, but I think Paul doesn't even really know what he wants. I don't think any of them know. The only person who knows what he wants is Michael Lindsay Hogg. I think Paul knows what he wants. Remember, like, that day three, he's like, it would be cool if we were arrested and we're dragged off while we're playing. He gets that. He wants a payoff. Paul gets what he wants. But I don't think he knows exactly how to achieve it. Yeah. None of us has had the idea of what the show's going to be yet. I think one of the things wrong about doing this show here is it's too easy. Dennis said, well, let's do a Twickenham. And I think that's wrong. We're doing the backyard. I think that's too easy. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
And that's why uh, I think that you all have decided to do a show, and it should be the best show, because you are the Beatles, you aren't four jerks. You know what I mean? The only thing about that, though, is that uh, we don't want to go away. Think of the lights in the water, torch lit, 2,000 arrows. You know, I mean, visually, it is fantastic. Oh, my, my trouble is, I usually get talk, talked over a good idea. I will every day say Tripoli, and every day I get close to the left. We can make it like a request. We should do the show in a place we're not allowed to do it. You know, like we should trespass, go in, set up, and then get moved, and that should be the show. So, that was, I mean, you know, if you put us in the Houses of Parliament, playing in the main gallery at the Houses of Parliament, and getting forcibly ejected, still trying to play your numbers, and the police lifting you. I think that's too much for She came in through the bathroom window. <laughs> Scuffling her cot with boots and truncheons and all that. You have to take a bit of violence. I think that's too dangerous. I mean, that is an interesting thought of you all being beaten up. I mean, if you go to the back of Manila, you could go to Manila again. Manila or Memphis. What about a hospital? But I don't mean for really sick kids. I mean for kids with broken legs. I mean really kind of 1944 Hollywood musical. Okay, so he knows, he sort of knows what he wants. Like he, he knows... Yeah. I think he he knows what he doesn't want, <laughs> and he and he has some idea of what he wants, but it's not like he has this vision of like this is what it's going to be. Yeah, and and no. and come on, everyone, get on board. Why is everyone being so negative? It's not like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's more like he's got a vague idea of what he wants, and he's he's thinking, all right, well, you know, we've got a film director, we've got a crew, we've got so you know, it'll it'll work itself out. We'll figure it out. But I'm saying he's still. He still clashes a lot with Michael Lindsay Hogg, like you know. Oh, there's yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's yeah. that scene, and you know, where, yeah. yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I love, I love it when Paul does that because it's like it kind of settles or, or I guess, refutes this idea of it being this. I don't know. Paul is one Glory thing. Glory project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Paul kind of tells him to fuck off a few times, you know, like in a nice way, in a yeah, respect, yeah, yeah, in yeah. a funny and respectful way. And he's just, he's just cool because he's not. This is what it is. It's not Paul selling his soul for for no. a, you know for a spectacle, and I, I think that's a bit of a misperception as well. You know, um, yeah, I think Paul wants something big and new and creative. And frankly, I think that Michael Lindsay Hogg is not coming up with those ideas. Yeah, and exactly. I think Paul's frustration is he wants the other Beatles to step up and start coming up with ideas. Right. Well, yeah, because, you know, when they're at their best, they're all, they're yes, all chipping contributing. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, I think that's a difference is I see Paul McCartney being like, come on, guys. Because at first, the first yeah. time I watched it, I was like, what does he want? Because they're all yes. there. Yes, and that's I what think, I was thinking. Yeah. I, the want. second time and the third time, I was like, oh, I get it. He wants to see them not just there and showing up and doing it. He wants their passion. Like, and yeah. And yeah. it's it's exacerbated by the fact that, you know, he also hears himself starting to get a bit bossy musically at times yeah. with all the George stuff and all that. And I think it all it all rolls into this sort of thing of like, here I am again being the de facto leader that I don't really want to be. And if everyone could just step up and and help, then I wouldn't have to do that, and I wouldn't have to right. listen to myself being the only person <laughs> trying, you know, trying right. to get. Whereas the other three, 
almost, and whether this is true or not, or whether this is Paul's perception or a bit of both or whatever, but it's like the other three just kind of think, ah, oh, well, you know, Paul will do it. Paul, yeah, Paul will yeah, put yeah. it. You know, well, they, they, in- they, we will turn up and we'll do, we'll do yeah. our bit, but, you know, Paul will drive, you know. Well, he is in this awful situation where he's the authority figure. You know, when they're sitting in a circle and they're saying that, you know, it would be great if Yoko wasn't in every single meeting. And Paul's like, no. And then he's like, well, it would be good if there was a daddy figure. Like, I think he recognizes that, yeah, I can't tell John. Exactly. To not to bring her. George but can't tell him, but somebody should tell him can. and it's not my role. But again, like, I think that this exactly is what he the mis- this is the misconception in Beetledom. John never did what Paul is doing when they're like, well, John no. abdicated. John never played that role. The problem is, you know, they had an external person, Brian. Brian. Yeah, that's right. And so without a Brian there, Paul's now having to be the bossiest in the, you know, the bossiest in music, which he's always been. Yeah. But now also the bossiest with all projects is too much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when he, when he says that, you know, <laughs> and then he says, you know, all right, lads, you know, you know, <laughs> leave you leave your ladies at home or whatever. And and that's that's actually him talking, you know, like that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's what he would like to say. Uh, yeah. but he needs someone else to say it for him. But but at the same time, he's like, well, I don't give a shit. I'll, I'm happy to bring Linda <laughs> to rehearsals. Yeah. You know? But 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 you know, Linda's not a problem, you know, because she you know she she doesn't talk for Paul and and yeah. uh, you know whatever it is. So so yeah, I think uh, I, th- I I can see his frustration. I think one other thing at play is that George is the most concerned about performing. You know, and so in front of large crowds, not performing, but the crowd thing again that George is saying, like he yeah. wants it just to be like a small, you know, small crowd, like a club when, you know, the interesting thing about that I was thinking is like, this is TV. I don't know why Michael Lindsay Hogg was so obsessed with the crowd. Like, yeah. just let these guys perform. They don't need an audience. Yeah. To your point, it was George, as far as I've been aware that, um, was really keen to stop touring in the first place, you know, yeah. in 66. He, yeah. he wanted out before the rest of them did. So, yeah. you know, that that makes sense. It's natural for, obviously, for George to to be a little uh, reluctant to perform after the yeah. experience of the early touring years. Yeah, and what was cute was George was so excited after the roof. You know, you look at George in the, in mm. the control room in the, afterwards yeah, yeah. and he's, he's like, he's so thing. excited. Yeah. I love that. I love George when he's enthusiastic and happy. I would love to have George on my side. Mm, absolutely. I'd love to have John too. Like John is so cute to look at. And when he's excited about something, he's so adorable. Um, Paul is a lot, lot more intense. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd want to be on the outside working with Paul McCartney, but if Paul McCartney is focused on you and your song or yeah. is loving what you're doing, you know, it would you it would probably feel like nothing else because he's so intense. He's so intense and he just, you know, just from from this film, I think the impression is that he's so um, he's such a leader, you know, like he's just, he is running the show and that's part of his intensity, I think, is like he's the, he's got the big presence. He's sort of calling the shots in a way. 
Um, yeah. And I think that would also be really intimidating to, to work with as well, you know? Right. Well, I'd like to pick up on this in the lunchroom scene when, when Paul goes, well, you know, defers to John about being the leader. I think that's very strategic and smart and honest. I think that Paul does see John as having this leadership presence and authority to the group that's really important. But I also think that Paul knows how to play John, not in a, um, manipulative not in way, a yeah. manipulative way. Like it is a little bit, but well, I, it's, I honestly it's like think it's trying to help John, f- um, feel the way John wants to feel, I think, which, you know? which is yes. And Paul knows that Paul knows John so well. He knows, like, if you read Hunter Davies book, the, the official biography, that all of John's friends talk about how important it is for John to feel like the leader. You know, he always wanted to be the first in charge. And Paul knows that. But I think to assume that when Paul's saying this, that he doesn't know that he needs John on board. He needs John's energy, his passion, his genius on board to make this happen. But that's that's not to diminish the the vision and energy and leadership that Paul McCartney is giving to the situation, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it, it can you can Paul is instinctively good at um, talking to people. Yes. You know? um, yes. And I think that he it, he could be um, telling John what he wants to hear sort of semi-strategically without even being all that conscious of it as well. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't – it's not like he planned this sort of strategy of I'm going to tell John that he's the leader. Oh. So there's that. But also, um, I think that Paul also, like, we got to remember that this is only, you know, five years post Hard Day's Night. Yeah. Right? And, 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 like, for them, you know, I'm sure for Paul, in some ways, he still does see John as I agree something of a leader of the bad. It's not that long ago that John really, really was the leader in some way. You know, I mean, I think I think you and I agree that Paul was always the co-leader, much more yeah. so than most people give him credit for, yes. especially in a Musically. studio. I mean, yes. there's no question that he was the yes. leader from day one in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think that John was sort of in, in many ways the face of the band and the um, the most synonymous name with with the band you know um and that wasn't that long ago you know for from yeah. the perspective of of 19 January 1969 well yeah. i agree like i think that john i think paul's not lying when he's like i'm not you i yeah. need john does function he does have an authority within the buddy the the gang of the beatles John has the authority. He's the oldest. He was the coolest. That's how they met, you know, and, and John does have a, he's very insecure in some ways, but very confident in other ways. Like, I feel like John's more grounded in like, I am who I am. I think that he gets very insecure at other times, but he, like Paul's a perfectionist and John's a little bit like, well, it's going to, I'm going to be the best. We're going to be the best. Anyways, like there is something about John's groundedness that I think really helps calm Paul and helps Paul feel confident. And when Paul is saying to him, I need you to support me, 
it's like to me, I see them as as a, a married couple, like a you know a musical married couple, and personally good marriages don't have a boss in my opinion. So I really see it as fluid. And what I, what I wish people would do is not necessarily listen to what they say, but look at their actions. I mean, when John does bring more and more of his energy and his um, confidence to the game, it helps but don't think that Paul McCartney isn't still driving this project, you know? And, and I find that this idea of like, this is my, one of my most hated tropes is this idea of positioning Paul as the second in command or the Lieutenant, which Paul even does. But in reality, you know, I see a leader as somebody who motivates people, which I think Paul is doing right here with John and is trying to do with all this. I I see a leader, somebody with vision, with energy and, you know, and, and confidence and instills confidence. And so you can see that this is very much shared. I think the leadership is so fluid between Lennon and McCartney and part of their fluidity is Paul allowing John to take that ultimate role while being the engine of what drives a lot of it. And I think, you know, to your point, he's always kind of done this. I pulled up a couple of quotes, like this is Colin Hanton from one of the original Quarrymen um, members. And he said, he talks about Paul and he said, Paul would have allowed John to feel that he was the boss anyway. Paul wouldn't have gone head to head with John, but Paul would have gotten his own way, if you'd like, carefully by maneuvering and perhaps letting John think it was his idea. I think that's the way Paul was. I mean, that sounds manipulative and, and maybe it is, but on the other hand, Paul McCartney at that time was a 15 year old, you know, talking to a bunch of kids that were older. It was probably smart to do that. Or this is Henry Benson in kind of the early Beatlemania days. He was a photographer and he said to me, Paul was the leader of the band. Paul was also the kindest one. He would always find time to talk to the fans, the reporters, whatever. If there was a decision to be made, John looked to Paul for confirmation. Decisions were definitely made by the two of them, but they took pains not to show the outside world that they were in charge. And then Norman Smith said, Paul was the leader in the studio from the beginning, coming up with the most musical ideas. Paul didn't wait for John to be a leader in the studio. Paul was always the leader in the studio and John deferred to Paul in this realm. And so that, you know, and Jeff Emmerich said, like, there's lots of people that say that. And that's not to say that John wasn't the ultimate spiritual leader of the Beatles in some ways. Mm. I just think it's a mistake to not, you know, see that it's shared and fluid. Yeah. I mean, well, <clears throat> I think, firstly, I think all of that, all of those quotes you just read about Paul in the studio yeah. are pretty obviously visible in get back like you know um yeah the 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 evidence is is right there in front of us yeah um but you know the, the leadership thing like you know they're two really different people and mm-hmm. they both bring very different but equally significant and strong aspects of leadership to yes. the partnership. That, yes. That's the bottom line. You know, it's so like, complimentary, yes. Exactly. And, okay, so Paul is the leader in the studio, um, clearly the musical leader, um, and I, I think we see evidence in Get Back that Paul is, is most able to be, to like have the command musically 
in the most effective way possible when John is uh, stepping up in his leadership um, role, you know, Mm -hmm. and certainly the reverse would be true, although we don't see it as much because Paul is always, seems to always be driven and always wanting to um, progress and and he's a workaholic and all that. So I I don't, you know, whether there were times, I'm sure there were, but we're not privy to them where John may have needed Paul's leadership but didn't have it, you know. Um, yeah, that, then, that doesn't seem to be that much of an issue. Maybe there's other issues. Yeah. You know, it seems like Paul was always full on. And sometimes I wonder if that was taken a little for granted. You know, they yeah. might have taken Paul's commitment and energy for granted. Totally. You know? Yeah. I mean, we don't know. I guess we don't know what happened in the studio, you know, throughout. Well, John felt that way with Across the Universe. You know, he felt like that Paul didn't step mm. up and help him actualize. But it's, but you know, I mean, it's not just about being the arranger, you know, or being the one to come up with parts or tell everyone what to do or, you know, that I think that's the um, stereotypical version of what yeah, people yeah, yeah, imagine yeah. about Paul's musical yeah. leadership. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's also just his energy. He's got the yes. energy in the studio, you know. Yes. He's... Even just his playing and his singing, everything is all in when yes. he's when when he's contributing. Whether or not it's as an arranger slash like producer, yeah, or whether it's just as a band member, vocally, instrumentally, I think that's a kind of leadership. The way he throws his energy around, whatever yeah. instrument he's on, you know. Yeah. Um, his voice is always, you know, when he's singing backing vocals, yeah. like it's always with a hundred percent effort and <laughs> did, intensity. Did you get, you know? Yeah. Did you notice a couple of times that Paul, like when they were doing, I think it was, I've got a feeling or something, or John was singing something. And there was a couple of times when Paul actually stopped singing and John was like, come on, sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> cause he, cause he knows that that's there, you know, that he knows that Paul is there to support him. And I know what that feels like, you know, when you know that you've got someone else in the band who is just guaranteed to like, who's your rock that you know that everything you do is going to be enhanced by their presence. And if you lose that for a second, you're like, whoa, 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 come back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Where did you go? Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, There's an expectation. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and and I don't know. I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but all the times in Get Back, where you hear where Paul's doing a backing vocal, mm-hmm. and it's louder than the lead vocal. Like it's it's almost overpowering the lead vocal. Is that an annoying thing? Like should he have uh, pulled back? Possibly, but uh, but you know, I mean, it's not like. It's it's usually happening in like a rehearsal or when mm, they're working mm, mm, through mm. something or whatever. So you mm. know, I'm not saying like he overdoes it and and grabs the limelight or whatever yeah, in, yeah, yeah. on a recording or in a performance. Yeah. But it's just his natural game yeah. is go hard, you know, go hard or go home kind of thing. Whereas, you know, um, and obviously the, he's always on the high part, so it's more, yeah, yeah. you know, it's more present anyway. So. Yeah, you know, but and he's often needs to sort of really 
you know, sort of scream it to to hit those yeah, high yeah. notes. And but but you know, the point I'm making is that his presence is yes. really um, dominant. All the well, time. that's the thing you know. is that Paul McCartney's presence and John Lennon, they are both supernovas in terms of yeah. like energy and genius. But anyways, uh, this, when you see John, actually, like you see John's leadership in that John's very sure when he commits to something, he's very sure. You know, Paul at the beginning was like, I'm trying. Paul almost doesn't want to put his foot down and say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do, guys. I need you to do that. I don't know why he feels uncomfortable being that sure. And it's funny, actually, because Paul does have the authority. Like, the Beatles actually are giving him the authority to run this show. You know, John has clearly agreed and seems to be saying, what do you want to do to Paul? And uh, so Paul has John's support. Right. And clearly Michael Lindsay Hogg, you know, Glenn Johns, Ringo, yep. um, George Martin, yep. they're all willing to follow Paul. So uh, maybe he's overthinking it. Right. Because sometimes John just says, this is what I want. Yep. And, you know, Paul doesn't always agree with him, but John says it. And in this case, Paul is careful. He's got a lot of things at play here where he's been criticized for it. And at the same time, you know, he probably should just be saying, this is what I think we should do. Any objections kind of thing. Totally. You know? Whereas you can see John isn't. John actually is like, come on. And you can see Paul at the end before they perform is a little bit hesitant. Like he's he's saying, well, I, you know, I, I had this vision of us having mm. a full album and we need to practice more. Paul's so much more of a perfectionist that I think that John's presence and sort of like confidence and, you know, like. like yeah, don't like worry about it. Yeah, his his willingness to just to just go. You know? Yeah, like he's got a certain courage, and uh, and he doesn't worry as much about. You can see this in the, in their, uh, you know, going forward in their solo careers. Paul is much more um, intense in terms of practicing and developing ideas, and John will just go out and do stuff. But I think that that gave Paul a lot of confidence. So when Paul is sort of feeling like they need to practice more and he wants a full album, John's kind of like, let's just do it. And I think that that, as you said, it's very complimentary because Paul could probably spin on his own, you know, which I think we saw a little bit in Wings. And John can sometimes go out there and do things that aren't well thought through, which we can see in John's solo career, Definitely, you know, without proper, (laughs) without thinking things through, without the practice that's required. And so really the two of them together are such a, an effective combination. And I think they loved who they were together. You know, I think they loved themselves when they were together. It was probably intoxicating how strong and good they felt somebody had their back. Totally. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I also think that Paul's reluctance to to you know just before the rooftop is also just to do with his his kind of disappointment of I agree of, of what the whole thing I has, agree. has become you know I agree. as in the, the project itself. Um, I think he really he I I can imagine him thinking oh really like is this it is this our big 
Well, he seems to say that. Get up on the roof and play to nobody. Okay. He (laughs) was excited at first. Remember there's that scene where like, it's interesting because John sort of talking to him, this was an interesting scene. And there's so many of these dynamics going on under the surface. Like for example, to go back to the, the, the lunchroom scene that we were just talking about, Paul says that, you know, that you've always been the leader. I've been second. It's kind of like, you've allowed me to do everything I want to do with your help. Like is kind of like an agreed upon thing, but Right when they start this conversation, John says that he has to swallow his ego and smother his jealousy for Paul. So Jackson cut that, and it's such an important element of that conversation, that if somebody that you're kind of like in a creative marriage with is like, I am struggling because I'm so jealous of you and I've got my own ego issues, I mean, my inclination would be to build them up and make them feel important and strong, you know? I mean, anybody would do that because you want, like Paul always wants John to be strong. I think there are certain times when uh, Peter Jackson has made selections that misrepresent the story. And and this, this is one of the big them. one. Yeah, this is the big one because, and you know, I was talking to Dan Rifkin and his point of view was, look, I think he was, he's a filmmaker and he was trying to tell the story and just keep it on George. You know, this was all about George. So he just kept the conversation about George, but Okay, first of all, that's fine. But then he should have at least acknowledged there was other people in the room because it seems like it's a secret conversation between John and Paul. So one gets the sense that it's very intimate when it's not. There's multiple people in this. Even some of the things that they're responding to are to other people. This isn't a conversation between the two of them. And so um, so there's that. And the, the problem with this one is people think it's a big deal. Like this seems to be the thing that everybody is like, that was the most shocking part of the whole film. And then it's, it frustrates me that the most shocking part of the whole film is not at all representative of the actual conversation. I mean, I think there are still things in the conversation that are incredibly shocking, you know, irrespective of whether they're contextually misrepresented or not. Like, I think people would be either way shocked by that exchange about, I guess, John airing his grievances about the way Paul sometimes... Uh, won't listen to anyone's anyone else on his own arrangements, and then and takes over on other people's around. Like there, there is that sort of um, clear moment of direct, like you know, they're not arguing; they're just. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that I don't know if that would be shocking. I think that the Paul saying "you're all always the boss." I, I mean, again, that is shocking to to hear him say that, but. I really need to know that John came in and said, I, do I want George back? Do I really want it sure. back enough? And talking about like, I have to smother my ego and yeah, stifle yeah, yeah. my, and, 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 you know, deal with my jealousy and that kind of thing before Paul says that, that reframes what yes. I, then if I know that, then I know that Paul is both playing to John, not politically, just, he knows if John is getting jealous and yeah. And dealing with his ego this is what Paul, I think Paul for a long time has played this role of like, no, no, John. Tell John what he needs one. to hear. Yeah. Tell John what he needs to hear so that he can get done what he needs to get done. Yeah. And now that does, I don't think it's completely untrue either. I think that Paul understands the authority that John has. I think he's underrepresenting his own leadership, how much he does, how much but his behavior. Deliberately, I think he's underrepresenting it. Deliberately, um, and, and yeah, look, uh, you know, I'm not. 
I'm certainly not saying that uh, without like the context that we're missing is yes. super important and yes. definitely changes a lot of what what's uh, being said or the meaning yeah. of what's being said. But but I'm just saying that you know if you don't know that yeah. there are there are certainly things that are very revelatory in that conversation. Just, just hearing saying- John and Paul like talk to each other about their issues in that way um, in the studio is really interesting to a lot of people, not just in terms of the John and Paul relationship and dynamic, but in terms of the way these men were thinking and feeling and sharing that with each other. I thought that at first too. I was like, oh, they do talk a lot more than one would think. Like, you know, I tend to think that they don't communicate, but clearly they do have conversations because you get from this conversation, this isn't the first time they've Correct. talked about some of exactly. these things. There's you know? clear reference to previous conversations. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's a few things that are, are interesting about this. So like Jackson Cut, there's a lot of like John... John talks about like this being his game and, you know, and even in Mendips, he was always playing this game. And like, even if you get the full transcript, it's incredibly hard to understand because they're talking in code and they talk their own language. They're only half, like, I don't even know if it's code. It's just like half talking about memories that we don't know. And so, well, I, I think all throughout the film, I find some of their conversations are really hard to follow because they seem to understand each other much, much better than any outsider could understand them. And there are literally things that they say that I'm just like, what the fuck does that mean? (laughs) And the person they're saying it to seems to know exactly Exactly, what it means and responds with an equally obscure and strange response that the first person also understands, you know. Yeah, well, especially Paul, especially the conversations between John and Paul. They're crazy and usually the things that Paul says are crazy, but John understands him. But I I don't think this conversation is representative of what the the flow of this conversation was about. It makes it sound like John is being defensive of George saying look we're doing this to him and you do this to me and Paul is like yep but then they quickly switch to their own issues because I think John is kind of empathizing with some of uh George's issues plus I think that John is deflecting I mean George walked out of the meeting because of John's issues his issues with John and Yoko does John take any responsibility for that bullshit no he doesn't he turns it entirely on Paul so John's very good at manipulating conversations and Paul probably already feels guilty so he's willing to take some of the blame here that's also the compromise that he was talking about in the previous scene is that he he will sit there yeah. and take John deflecting this back to him because he understands that if he doesn't tread lightly around the John and Yoko issue, then John is going to become very uncomfortable and that's going to compromise the whole balancing act that is happening within the dynamic of all of them, right? Like, I think that it's just a dynamic. I just think Paul is one of these people that, you know, he says that he always thinks he's right and always feels guilty. And so I think he probably walks around believing he's right. And then secretly does feel guilty. And so when John projects his issues onto Paul, Paul's kind of like, oh, you're right. I am wrong. That That's how my reading of it is that Paul almost doesn't know. It can be both though. Like he, cause you know, we've heard Paul talk about how he has doubted himself 
in moments where other people have called him controlling and yeah. um and overbearing is I think the one that he uses. And mm-hmm. and and so, you know, and he talks about how that stifled him with wings a little bit and all yeah. that sort of stuff, right? That fear of so, being that way, yeah. Exactly. So we know that he was actually open to hearing and accepting responsibility for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I still think that he could be taking what John's saying and earnestly sort of taking it on board whilst also thinking to himself, I need to be careful what I say here because I know that this issue with George is not just about me being overbearing in the studio. It's also to do with John. but. Yeah. I need to be careful about how I talk to John about the Yoko situation. That's what he seems to be saying in the previous scene when he talks about having to compromise with the whole thing where all of the others in the circle are sort of egging him on to try and, you know, uh, reproach John or confront John about the whole business with Yoko and Paul saying, I can't basically. Yeah. Yeah. Jean Jacket would be like, oh, well, Paul feels like John's going to leave, you know, and, and. No, it's not that. It's not that Paul feels that John's going to leave. It's that Paul needs John, as you keep saying, to step up and do his job in the band and support him. And if he doesn't, you know, I think he feels that part of his job as the leader in this time, as the force of stability, you know, within the group is to just make sure that everyone's doing that, you know, that everyone yeah, yeah. supporting everyone to be able to do their but that, job. You know? But that's, that, that's what I'm thinking when you're talking about this is that Paul is protecting John. He knows that John needs Yoko. For some reason, John needs Yoko emotionally. So he's not going to force that Ruffle issue. Ruffle those he's feathers. Gonna, exactly. He's going to protect that. He knows that John is not communicating. Like he knows that for some reason, John, needs Yoko. He knows John is doing heroin. He's very upset about this. He's like, okay, I got to keep John balanced. I got to keep John on side. I want to get John healthy, whatever he's thinking. He's, he's trying to get John to be strong. He won't go abroad because he knows that Ringo doesn't want to go abroad. He's now thinking, okay, what do we need to do to get George back? And he understands that, you know, it's him. He's taking, he's taking his sort of Portion feedback. of the blame. Exactly. Yeah, Portion yeah, yeah. Of the, for being too too um, overbearing. So, yeah. but to me, that is being a leader. Is sort of you know trying to protect everybody on the team. Ah, that is the very essence of leadership. And I I take your point that you know that do- probably doesn't come across in Peter Jackson's cut in the way that we're um, exploring it now. Um, and I think this is why we need people like you and other people to, who have different emotional insights into yeah. the whole situation because, okay, Peter Jackson, you know, yeah. has Peter Jackson's lens and, you know, <laughs> yeah. no pun intended, right? Whether he's, whether you want to call him old school or yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. I, I think, and, and I'm going to sort of half defend him here and say that, if you're Peter Jackson and, you know, you're you're specifically trying to tell the George story at this point, right? Yeah. And you're going through the footage and you're saying, 
how can I just succinctly tell the George story and and keep this about George because I can see all this other stuff happening here between John and Paul and between other people, but I don't want to dis- you know like it's kind of going to distract from the narr- from the flow of the George narrative as a filmmaker. He's thinking that you know I know um, he's thinking uh, that, but I'm just saying uh, that he he's cho- choosing an issue, the George story over the Lennon and McCartney story, which is probably right. key. Yes, but I think, but I guess what I'm saying is he probably doesn't, as a old school Beatle thinker, maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he probably doesn't even see or realize yeah what is hiding in plain sight here in terms yeah. of the 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 John Paul story because he's a not focused on the John Paul story. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he's deliberately you know withholding hiding. things yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, well, okay. I get what you're saying that it's kind of confirmation bias. Like he doesn't, it, yeah. he thinks the story is this way. He thinks the George story is the most important. He may not even seen the stuff that's going on between John and Paul. So he doesn't focus on it, but he does cut the John talking about the being jealousy jealous. Thing. He yeah. does talk about John saying, I've been manipulative. Like he has taken uh, yeah. lines out. Well, I, I think you're under... Um, underplaying the extent to which people are not looking for that kind of stuff or are not, not, not just not looking for it, but not even like it's, it's, they're just, you know. Um, they don't see it. They don't see it because we, you know, we see it and we know about it and it supports all this other stuff, all yeah. this other deep dive stuff that we've yeah. done about in their music, in their lyrics, in their relationships, in the interviews. It's all stuff that you and I and other like-minded fans have yep. really, really spent a lot of time thinking about and uncovering. And it means that we see it so easily. It just jumps out. And I know it seems crazy to hear John say something so significant like that and to just skim over it. But I mm-hmm. genuinely think that that is what that is something a jean jacket would do i think it is well i don't know i mean john wrote a song called jealous guy jealousy is an issue one would think if you were looking for themes in this that might stand out that might stand out a few lines later when he talks about i've always been playing that game and maneuvering and it's my game and so we don't know why you know who knows who had a watching eye over the editing process yeah 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 we don't know. but but anyways, the thing is, is this conversation then switches to one that is entirely different about yeah. John wanting to go off and do his own thing. Solo and Paul thing, is yeah. extremely supportive, supportive of it. Yeah. yeah. So Paul is extremely supportive of it and is saying, look, in, in an insane way that took me like 20 times to actually get what the he was saying. Box thing, about yeah. the, kicking the phone box. Yeah. It was like, okay, finally I get that. What Paul is saying is like, as long as you're authentic, and doing you and believe in and what you're doing. doing. 100% like just throwing yes, yourself in. into it, you know, yeah. Yeah, it'll be amazing because, you know, anytime – he was basically saying people can tell when something – when people believe in what they're doing. So he's saying to John – go do it. And, and, you know, John sort of demurs when Paul is enthusiastic about it. And then, you know, it's to Ringo in the end that he's like, and in the end, we'll all be singing together, you know? So it's kind of like, this is what I mean about this conversation is to me, it, 
it's not representative to just say they had a conversation about George because there's multiple things going on in this conversation. There's John's jealousy. There's Paul trying to placate everyone and understanding that he's overbearing. There's John and Paul's issues. There's John playing with the idea of going, you know, going solo and probably hoping that Paul will say, uh, John, don't do that. You know, you'd be amazing, yeah. but I think you should just like, there could be a good reason John is promoting this. Well, maybe I'll go. I mean, in my opinion, he probably wants Paul to say, no, you should stay here. Like I'd, you could do it, but I think you should stay here, which Paul McCartney doesn't do. Which, you know, is yet another, potentially another um, in, in a line of many instances where Paul actually fails to read what John really needs. In that I agree. Com- I agree completely. And, and I, th- I find what is interesting is like, you know, our point of view in the past from 68 onwards is John is upping his game of provocations of like, I need you to tell me that you see me, that you know how good I am, that you know how much you need me and, right. and, and that you love me and everything he does. And Paul keeps, every time John does something like that, that's provocative, Paul takes a step back and is like, oh, you need freedom? Sure, yeah. I, I support you, John. And like when somebody desperately it's needs- It's It's like complete, <laughs> like classic miscommunication, really. It's like Paul really is trying to be supportive and trying to be a friend and trying to do what's best for John, but- completely misunderstanding the, the the cry. And I think that, that that Yoko is way better at this because she understands that probably the worst thing you can do to John Lennon when he pushes you away is walk away, you Let know, like, the, yeah, yes, right. exactly. Like Yoko never leaves John, even when they're during the long weekend, she calls apparently like what, 10 times a day, 15 times a day. So Yoko understands that when John loves somebody, he wants to know that they are not going to leave him. Not Fine. to mention the fact that she orchestrates the whole thing, Yoko. Yes. Right. So, With May. I mean, so it's like, what, you know, what better example is there of her understanding that John needs her to be hanging there in the shadows, you know, like knowing in she order won't to, leave. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Showing how much she cares. That's, <laughs> and that's crazy. Everybody thinks that's crazy, but I think that's a level of attention that John needs to feel safe with people he loves. And what I found really fascinating is this is the kind of thing that Paul will say. We played some audio of uh, Paul in September 1969 just saying, like, if John wants to go and do big concerts, I would be the last person to stop him. You should do that, you know? Like, Paul is constantly saying to John, if you feel like you need to do this, great. And then in 1970, he's quoted talking, doing an interview. He's like, John shouldn't be in the Beatles at this point. I, it would be terrible. I wouldn't want him to be. So like yeah. every, Paul is constantly saying to John, you should go. I definitely <laughs> support that. I think that when John is like, could you just say you don't want to? Anyways. Um, but I think what's really interesting is there's such a difference w- between what Paul says rationally Because it's two days later that Paul shows up back in Twickenham, sits at the piano, and unveils a song, Oh Darling.
where he both makes the point in the song that he'll die if whatever person leaves and that he will never leave them. So I don't even know if Paul knows consciously he's doing this, but I think in that he's both reassuring John, I won't leave. And by the way, I don't want you to leave, you know? Yeah, but it's not enough for John. What do you think John needs? I don't know. To know that that's directed at him? To something more explicit? I don't know. I I think so. I think so too. Like I was thinking about that. I mean, beyond the fact that John probably wants everything in one partner. and But setting that aside, what could Paul do? Because I think from an outsider perspective, you're watching them and it's like, it's pretty clear that Paul really loves John. So John, what do you need? But again, as we were just talking about, I don't think John's need is normal. Like his level of what he needs is normal in terms Definitely of yeah. reassurance. And I think when you look at the way that Paul interacts with John, instead of coming up and sort of going, uh, so what songs have you got, John? Yeah, yeah. Where are and then, cu- you know, it might have been better if probably what John would have appreciated if <laughs> was if Paul would have said, John, what's up? Like, why are you having a hard time writing? Like, yeah. you know, can I help you? Is or there even like Paul, like John, let's, do you want to write to get, like, do you want to? Yeah come around after the session yeah, today yeah, and yeah. write together. Or, I mean, I don't know, you know. I would love to uh, hear what ideas you have. Like, yes, exactly, let's do it off camera. Or the the heroin thing when Paul just cuts John off, it would be good if, you know, it might've been good if Paul was kind of like, John, what's up, dude? Like, why are you doing heroin? What are you, yeah. What are you doing? I mean, yeah, like, I mean, it's, yeah. It's an or, alternate universe we're talking about. Like that would just never have happened. <laughs> no, but I know, but we're just speaking hypothetically. Like what yeah, does John yeah, yeah. need? Like, because yeah. it seems clear that Paul loves John, but I think that the level of intimacy and like you said, it's the um, the specific and blatant and clear communications from Paul to John. Cause I think John's never sure it's to him specifically, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, Paul is still, uh, you know, as much as, we're saying he's aware of all the little dynamics and he's trying to balance everyone's needs and all that stuff. Yep. He's also still Paul, who's very stoic and KG. Oh yeah. KG and not yeah. really very good at opening up and yes. um, and actually you can see that in in the film. Like it's it's sort of right there on show, I think. He's quite like what is it? Um, he's just got that very masculine sort of aloof, slightly aloof charisma. I don't, do you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. Because even in the lunchroom scene, even in the lunchroom scene that, you know, you can see that John is talking about, this was my game. And I said, uh, you know, that uh, do you like me at Men Dips? And then he talks about his jealousy. And then he talks about, well, you know, wanting to go to, and nothing is about Paul's feelings. Nothing is about Paul's feelings there. He's taking what John says, saying, I've been watching, I've been listening. Yes, I know I do this, but it's not really, he's not saying, I need this ever. Yeah. You, you, Paul doesn't communicate his his emotions. No, no, he doesn't. Yeah, that's a great point. And John does quite freely. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, when you look at Paul's songs, and just to preface this, obviously all of this discussion is speculative. You know, we have no idea what this is about. Nobody knows. 
These are some of our interpretations. When you look at Paul's songs and you see two of us and you see Long and Winding Road and Let It Be, it's kind of like, oh, Paul's so emotional at this time, you know? And he is. But if you're John Lennon and listening, and the part of two of us that seems really specific is one about the fact that the, you know, the memories from before are probably longer than the ones that are ahead, which would be scary for me if I was hearing that. Let it be is kind of like, well, I give up, you know, best thing to do is just let it be. And Long and Winding Road is kind of like, well, I'll never quite reach, you know, there's just kind of an impasse. And if you're John Lennon looking for- In fact, he talks about the block, like he, you know, that scene where he's talking about it's it's an obstacle. There's always an obstacle, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm sure that's all under the surface and not conscious, but, you know, that's, is that how much is he talking about the metaphorical obstacles there, you know, with, I don't know. It's, right. I wonder how John would have read that, you know. Well, and, and don't think that they aren't reading each other's songs, but they no, don't 100% know either, you know, that just in fact, when John was being interviewed in that for CBS or the CBC or BBC or whoever yeah. it was that he was talking to yeah. that morning that he's on heroin, um, he talks about that, that, Paul sees things like the the interviewer asks him if he minds when people read into their songs. And he said, no, because, you know, there are things, there are are multiple levels. You know, Paul will notice things in my songs that I didn't notice. And I'm sure vice versa, I think. But when I look at like the themes, Paul is sort of like, it's sad. And I guess we'll just let it be. And there's kind of a giving up on Paul's side. Yes. Whereas John's is yearning. Yeah. And don't let me down. Like there's almost yeah. like, it's almost like a, the, the gauntlet thrown, like do something. Yeah. 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 Desperation and, and pleading. Do it. Like he, I think he counts on Paul to make moves, you know? And so the, the don't let me down, it can obviously can have multiple meanings like two of us does, but I yeah. definitely think one of its targets is Paul and you know, and I always say this and people, I think, I think I'm crazy, but, you know, dig a pony. All I want is you, but everything has got to be the way you want it to. I mean, ignoring the sexual connotations of that one, that could definitely apply to Paul McCartney too. You know, that John is like, dude, I want to be, I love being partners with you. We have a marriage, but it's just like, you. It's, why does it have to be your way all the time? You know, but, but who else could, like, what actually else could that mean? Honestly, like who is that to Yoko? Why would he be saying that to Yoko? Everything does that not, does that not say it because she's fairly controlling. Does that not make sense to you for Yoko? Well, no, it doesn't because because um, if you're saying it's to Yoko, then you're talking about his new fresh love that he's apparently so um, you know besotted and. Uh, distracted by and invested in, you know, at the expense of everything else. So why would there be a negative or a sort of like a, um, you know, um, yeah, frustration. What he's saying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I want is you makes sense to be about Yoko. But what does the next line mean? (laughs) Exactly. It's a complaint. And it's a little early. I agree with you. They've been together for like six months at this point. Exactly. And and Yoko hasn't really imposed her controlling, you know, like later she gets to be quite controlling, which John clearly likes. But at this point, I don't think she is. I mean, I think that she's there partly because she wants to be there and she's threatened and, you know, for a number of reasons. 
but I don't think that John is sort of um, feeling constrained by that. The person that he's sort of chafing against is somebody else in this situation. Yes, some other unnamed partner, anonymous person. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But, but it's true. Like, I don't think the fandom would ever think this is about Paul because there is the sexual connotations. But if we take that away, like you said, there is this yearning. There is this beseeching quality. Like, all I want is you. But it's just like, yeah. you can't have it. But the, like, the sexual connotations don't change that. I mean, Paul, John and Paul were both uh, very... Uh, well practiced at using double entendre yes, in all exactly. of their songs. They were exactly. they've been doing it since they were teenagers. That's right. And uh, it doesn't mean anything. They did that as a way of presenting things. <laughs> right, right, right. You know? Exactly. As in, they would write a song that was could be completely to each other, and then they would up the level of sexual, yeah. you know. Exactly. Uh, um, exactly suggestiveness Stakes. in it because yeah, yeah. that sells better you know that plays yes. better yes and yes. it was part of their humor and part of yes. their chart you know the sort of the way they operated on multiple levels and, and they you know, know this that is, yes exactly and they're really operating on multiple levels here you know like if if what we're saying is right then you know it's almost like there's the two levels for the public and then yep. there's the third level for each other you know that's right that's ex- I, I 100% believe that's how they operate is that there's the, the you know, can play on the radio level. Yes. There's the cheeky level that people who are in the know will get. And then there's often the messages to each other that are also yeah. baked in. And so, you know, even though you see John writing that song and, you know, he's kind of making up the lyrics as as it goes. So they're probably not that, you know, he calls it gibberish or whatever he calls it, gobbledygook yeah. later on. But there are some lyrics in there that do apply yeah. to Paul about being yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, imitate, you know. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. some certain like Paul is apparently the world's greatest mimic, and yes, yes. And then later, and John, you can Paul, radiate any, any anything you are or whatever it is. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like just the 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 notes in that song are kind of like you're amazing, you yeah. can do anything, you know. I want you, but. You know, I need you to be more flexible. And and that's kind of the conversation they're having in the lunchroom is like, you need to let me breathe a little bit with your arrangements because you're overpowering, you know, and you can hear things and I know it, you're amazing, but it's not always what I want, you know? Yeah. Well, it makes perfect sense when you, when you, and, 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 you know, the gobbledygook doesn't, doesn't change anything because again, that's another mode of expression for John. We know that he has a history of um what's what's the word? Um the uh, um stream of consciousness. You oh, know, okay. like just writing what flows. Yeah. Um and and obviously obfuscating and um using poetic possibly meaningless like malapropisms and yeah, all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. And he's into that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that those lyrics have no meaning it just means that it's a mode of it's a form for him it's a way that he writes um yes it's not linear Linear, exactly yeah. exactly it's not linear but i do think that john is careful about his lyrics like he's always thinking about yeah. them you know and occasionally there's words that just feel better or fit better or whatever but i don't think that john writes that much that doesn't have deeper meaning to him 
Yeah, but I mean, like, even the songs that he later, and, you know, we know that he was very dismissive later on of a lot of his own work, but the songs, you notice that the songs that he was really proud of to his dying day all have, uh, or not all, but many of them do still have that... um, that sort of obscure yes, form to them. Like, yes. like Strawberry Fields, you mm-hmm. know, was one of his favourite lyrics that he wrote. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but that is not linear in any way. And it's, <laughs> you could easily read as complete gibberish, meaningless uh, it's you like know, snippets dribble. of a conversation in a dream. Exactly. Yes, yes. Exactly. And and frankly, same with Across the Universe, which is one of his favorite lyrics. Yeah. That and it's beautiful. It's beautiful poetry, yeah. but is in no way linear or um or clear in, in its in its meaning. So I don't think um yeah, I don't think his style of writing necessarily betrays any sort of level of legitimacy or authenticity of what he's saying, you know? Well, and same with Paul. I mean, you can see Paul writing, uh, you know, The Long and Winding Road, but the words he ended up choosing do reflect his life. Maybe they were, he was just intuitively going there, but you know, and he wasn't, he wasn't like sitting down saying, I'm going to write about this, but the stuff that's coming out of him that ended up in the song, I think is very autobiographical, you know? So, so in other words, when it Uh, seems like they're, Doing things randomly, there's meaning still, you know? Well, I mean, I think Paul, I mean, we know for sure that that's Paul's um, mode of of creativity a lot of the time is that yeah. both musically and lyrically is that he just goes. He just lets himself um, sort of spew out whatever comes, both musically and lyrically, mm-hmm. and then later on, he refines and and you know sort of yes. um, tweaks and whatever edits and, refines uh, yeah exactly and and that and and that's just the way he works he's he wants to start with sounds and um, just you know shapes and colors and feel yes and, yes and yes. feel exactly yeah. and then later on there's a bit more and you know sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't I guess a bit more sort of uh, crafting <laughs> after the fact. That's and, right. That's, and that's right. maybe why he's been accused at times of being uh, shallow or uh, slight in his yes. content because maybe sometimes he just does settle on what sounds good and what feels interesting. And I think that's a completely legitimate mode of artistry personally, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever, some people yeah. need everything to have a clear meaning and whatever but yeah i think the point is that they both they both were happy to be abstract to a degree and and sort of um obscure uh but still that you know it didn't mean that there weren't very real and solid ideas behind what they were writing yeah. And so the point of, you know, this conversation too, is that, you know, to, to, to bring that to a full circle is that you, when you look at their major songs that they're writing at that time, they are writing to each other. You know, my personal pet peeve is that, uh, you know, that two of us is chosen as yeah. like, it's, it's only Paul is seen as writing about them. Yeah. And that's so typical of the fandom again. And it's, it's like, John literally says, don't let me down, babe to Paul. And it's like, that could never be partly about Paul. Whereas two of us, which 
Paul has repeatedly said was about Linda and Linda has said is about Linda. And I think that there's credence to it being about Linda because when he comes in, it's just the bit about the two of us. I don't think he has the, you and I have memories. The, the middle eight. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. I don't think he has that when he comes in. And absolutely that's about John, I'm sure, because it doesn't no question for Linda. Yeah. But the so, Sunday driving and not arriving is clearly about Linda. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'd like to, like, as much as we do see Yoko in Don't Let Me Down, I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that these men are talking to each other. And and interestingly, they're talking in very different ways. And the problem is, is that people pay attention to Paul, what Paul's writing and assume it's for John and don't pay attention to what John is writing and when you look at what John is writing, the all you know, Dig a Pony and Don't Let Me Down again, you know, Don't Let Me Down is the weirdest song in the world with the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, nobody ever know, loved me. Nobody, uh, and I guess yeah, if, and, if somebody ever loved me, <laughs> no end of sentence. <laughs> well, Jonathan, let me just ask you, like, as a guy who yeah. was, you know. What well, what do you think when you like does I can tell you as a woman if some guy wrote me that song I'd be just like wait it feels like there's somebody else in this relationship you know what I mean like yeah. it does yeah, yeah. but I, I mean know. did you never I, notice I, that of course I did I mean I always found that to be such a weird lyric I always wondered as a kid what the fuck he meant by and if somebody ever loved me like she do me yes she does. Like, firstly, weird turns of phrase. Yes. Secondly, sentence never got finished. Yes. What was the end of the idea. Yeah. Like, what are you saying, dude? <laughs> like, what the fuck does that mean? Is this, you know, like, and, and, um. It's very unresolved. Very unresolved. I, I, and I don't yeah. know what the answer is. I don't know what, why, why, what I think about that. I mean, I think the only thing I can think of is that it's just sort of like love struck bit of gibberish that vaguely means you're amazing you're the best thing that's ever i don't know you know what i mean like that's that that's the only kind of thing i can attribute to it and that's probably how i always heard it yeah yeah when i was younger um because even the way he sings it is a bit giddy you know like there's a kind of uh, there's a, a tone to his voice that sort of almost sounds like he's smiling when he sings it. In those um, sort of strange lines that we're talking about, oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I find yeah. there to be a bit of a, a bit of a sort of cheekiness and sort yeah, of almost I can see cool that boy kind of like yeah feel to it. Yeah, it's actually what I actually think it is is John and Paul playing up to each other while they're singing that because you can see it when they perform it and when they do it on the rooftop and when they're doing it in the studio, 
it, that that's actually what that's what that sound in his voice is i think yeah i think so. like i get what you're mean did you did you notice them looking at each other like it was more cut up i i think in the original i could see them john i agree looking I, at paul more i agree i think there's less of that in peter jackson do you want cut. do you want to do you want to defend peter jackson again <laughs> no, I won't defend him again. You know what uh, pa- Paul actually says about like Dig a Pony? He's like, I love that one. And I, I wonder if Paul kind of knows. Like, that's the thing that I always wonder. Do they know? Because I'm pretty yeah. sure that John probably gets that Oh Darling is partly to him. He likes it so much. He wants well, to Well, you know what I mean? It. The other thing is, which you've pointed out before, is that, you know, you've got Don't Let Me Down in Hey Jude. Yes, the phrase "Don't let me down." Yes, which, to which John replies with, "That's right, don't let me song, down." Don't let me down. To yeah. which Paul replies, "I will never let you down." That's right. Yes. In so they are Odell. having an ongoing conversation. Definitely. I mean, how can that not be um, conscious? I, I, I yes, exactly, that. exactly. Like I feel like the oh darling, he's like spelling stuff out. He also uses the word harm, which we've highlighted as, I think, a, yeah, a code, yeah, yeah. code word. Um, yeah. You know, it's in I'm so tired and they use it. Uh, John uses it in the 70s. And, and, yeah, and it's, it's John's and it's John's style of music as well. It's the 50s, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, do up. Do up. Uh, thank you. And um, just his vocal performances. Yeah, yeah has got John written all over it. And we know John thought he should have sung it. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. probably would have done a spectacular job of it, even though Paul's vocal performance is flawless. But, you know, I mean, I think John also would have done it great I justice. do too. I think John, I think um, it totally would have been amazing. Like John would yeah, have done it. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah, you just, it just recalls some of John's earlier earlier amazing vocal work on some of the earlier records. Yeah, and John's and, vocal um, was amazing throughout this, actually. Oh, amazing. At this time. Um, But it does make sense for Paul to be writing in John's style. It sort of makes me think a little bit of, you know, um, songs like Call Me Back Again and, um, and, um, you know, the other one. Let Me Roll It To You? Yeah, Let Me Roll Yeah, thank you. Um, Those songs that you feel were kind of, you know, had John in mind when he wrote them. And it's 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 stylistically... Yeah, it reminds me of starting over, you know, where right, yeah. where John kind of sounds like a little Elvis. Elvis, yeah, Elvis, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? And and you know, I suspect, right. strongly suspect, there are some messages to Paul in that yes. song. So yes. I think I you're think right that they do. Right. It's not just like a line in a song. They'll be like John often uses like a a melody or a riff or something yeah. from Paul, like musically. Oh, even like starting over, I, I would argue musically, and I don't. There might be I'm. So I'm talking off the cuff here. I haven't fully thought this through, but I think if you look at the opening lines of starting over, um, you know, our life together, that section, there's like the chords that ascend by a semitone each time. There's like a little chromatic ascending movement in the chords. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got like the major chord at the start and then it's got the raised fifth and then it raises it again to the sixth and then to the seventh. That is very Paul harmonically, like to to have like a chromatic movement mm. through chords. That's that's I would call that a hallmark of Paul's <laughs> writing. 
Yeah. Uh, and not something John did as much off the top of my head. I'm sure someone might shoot Counter back that. 10 yeah, examples yeah. of yeah. John doing that. <laughs> but, but, you know, feel that feels... I mean, John did it actually now that I think about it in song Isolation as well. But it's not, it, I do feel like it's, it's a bit of a channeling of yes. Paul's harmonic sensibility there. Um, just like I always thought he did in... Um, Real Love, the opening uh, intro section of Real Love. I really? think he's ch- okay. mm-hmm. channeling Paul. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, you know, there's some demos where he like talks about somebody being on a farm. There are, you know, references yeah, yeah, exactly. in, in early yeah. versions. So clearly, I think Paul was on his mind. Well, in, in certain iterations of the song, at least, or or something like uh, I know, I know, where he literally uses the riff from I've Got a Feeling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, you know, so all of these songs, like these men mean so much to each other and they're, they're songwriters. And so, yes, they use their craft sometimes to communicate to each other, right? Obviously, all of this discussion is speculative. Yes. It's, just, it's just interesting to look at the differences in the themes of what they're communicating. But as you said, that was very astute that in some ways, this is a hard time to read John because he is often silent. We know that Paul says that he knows John, you know, that John probably thinks he's communicating, you know, telepathically <laughs> that nobody actually can understand. So, but there is a lot of like John just staring, but then when he does, I think he quotes lyrics a lot. He sings songs, you know, the, the, his song choices, his themes are all give insight into what John's thinking at the time, right? Yes, yes. I mean, it's no accident that the songs he quotes in that um, uh, Peter Sellers scene are, you know, ask me why I say I love you and when I touch you I feel happy inside. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not a coincidence. I've never needed anybody's help in any way. But now my life has changed in oh so many ways. What Papaluma... Berlin bamboo. We can't carry on like this indefinitely. We seem to be. We seem to, but we can't. See, what you need is a serious program of work. Not an aimless rambling amongst the canyons of your mind. An aim in my trip upon that golden ship of shores. We all together, boy. To wander aimlessly is very unswinging. I'm hip. When I touch you, I feel happy inside. I can't hide, I can't hide. Mm-hmm. Ask me why. What I'll you say need I love is you. a schedule. Achieve something every day. And why do you think he chooses those ones? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not necessarily posing a theory. I'm just saying that 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 like he he's clearly speaking almost through lyrics. Yes, exactly. And the you know the quotes are related to each other. You know, um, he hasn't just chosen two randomly disconnected songs. Right. Um, I mean, it's very brilliant the way he the way he strings together bits lyrics from their songs, and then yeah. even the talking about the space between us. You know, 
Um, yeah. And you, that's John. That, that, that's John's genius, right? Like I think another thing, just as a side note, that is really like spectacularly on display yeah. throughout this film is John's genius yeah. in terms of wordplay, wordplay yes. and comedy and just, yeah, I've heard a lot of people comment about that. Um, yes. And so, and so, yes, because that's such a – um, natural uh, form of communication and and even just thinking for him, you know, he just has yeah. this way of of um, yeah of stringing the right words together and yeah and yeah yeah. It's interesting. I was thinking about that. That I think that Paul plays songs that conjure memories. You know that he he will yeah. tap into songs that to trigger a memory. Um, kind of like a, you know, something just that's deep in them that they will both know to reference. Whereas John, I think more quotes lyrics and chooses specific songs with lyrics to communicate things to Paul, like just like different way. I I think. And I, I know this is a bit of a stereotype and it's not, enti- not entirely um, as simple as people say, but Paul's like first mode is music yeah. and John's first mode is lyrics yes. really like in yes. terms of just pure like their each each of their sort of natural abilities yes. to just um express on the fly yeah. you know i think Paul is has that with music and John has that with words and um that also comes through i think in what you're saying about the way they choose to communicate with each other. Yeah, like yeah, no, I gets think gets on true. the piano and plays certain songs, and you know, sort of is talking through the music. And John spits words out and quotes lyrics. And yes, he plays songs as well, but it's all often lyrically driven. You know. Yeah. Later in that scene, um, near the end, when John is saying, "Well, your problem is that it was your project, and now it's our project." And I was a little bit like, to me, that's that's a little bit of the undercurrent where John is both helping Paul and frustrated that Paul is still dry. Like this is a Paul-led idea. And I didn't think that was a fair call on John's part when he's like, you wanted it to be your way and now it's all of ours. Because I sort of thought Paul when's was that, trying. When, when's that comment? That's um, maybe is in that the third in the stu- episode. In the studio? Yeah, it's in South yeah. Row. And... You know, and it's right before John plays, I lost my little girl. Mm. And right before, like, he's sort of saying to like, Paul, look at it. You know, I know you had this vision, but it's changed and it's become all of our vision now. And it's just going to be an album and it'll be cool. Like, you know, sorry, you're not getting your way. He's kind of saying, and Paul looks a little bit disappointed and Paul's trying to get it. He's like, I know, I just have to get my mind around it. And I think to your point, it's. Paul wants them to be extraordinary. What you're moaning about is there's no payoff. I think all I, think all I want to do is like, uh, I probably, you know, having got it together, I probably just want to go and have fun with it rather than just sort of finish off exactly as we started. And I'd like to sort of do a for the finish. Mm. And we just get out in the open, oh. change a scene. Or, do and do it somewhere else. Do it on a live show. Do it on a stage. Mm. You know, I'd like to, to light a rocket and really sort of take off for the end of it. And uh, 
Yeah, but that's going a bit like overboard, I suppose. Still could be. But that's me, you know, I always do that. He's, he's the most ambitious. Yes. He wants them to be extraordinary. And I think that John is like, well, it will be extraordinary. Trust us. We're extraordinary. Yeah. And I thought John's comment was a little unfair. Like, it's not like the, at the beginning, this was a Paul Star vehicle. I think this is like their underlying issues sort of rearing its ugly head. But, but then after that, Paul is looking a little disappointed. And John plays, at least in the way that it's told in the film, he plays, I lost my little girl. And I feel like that's, John's speaking to Paul, you know, he's playing the first song Paul ever written that, you know, John knows very well, yeah. which is interesting. And I think it's his way of soothing him. Like it's, it's us. Don't worry. I love you. Whatever he's saying with this song, it's important, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but then, then right in this scene while that's playing, that's when Michael Lindsay Hogg and uh, Glenn, Glenn Johns come up to him and they tell him about the roof and he's so happy. You know, because that sort of seems like it's going to be big. But then when they finally go on the roof, I don't know if Paul was thinking, we'll do a full album. We'll record a full album. This will be the achievement that we're looking for. And when they go up and they've got like a handful of songs, maybe it seemed just compromised. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when John makes that comment, it's, I, I hear it as him trying to, trying to help Paul, trying to trying to help Paul come to terms with what it is and yeah. trying to explain, you know, it's not what you thought. I, I don't know if I get that undercurrent of uh, you wanted it to be all about you, but now it's maybe not. Maybe not that. I think he's more saying like you had an idea. Now you wanted us to be enthusiastic. Now it's all of our thing, but it's not what you wanted. So maybe it's yeah. not as aggressive as I'm suggesting. Yeah. That's fair. But I did, I did get a, a little touch of like, well, Paul, now you have to, you have to buy into all of our idea. You have to compromise. Yeah, a little bit. yeah. I mean, there might be a bit of that, and there might be a little bit of, you know, don't forget, Paul, we're we're a band, you know. Yes, and it's, yes. And it's um, it's not just because, yeah. I guess as you say, it, it does pick up from the lunchroom conversation where John is airing his grievances about Paul's tendency to dominate yes. the arranging and the yes. blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I, I, t I take your point. But it, it just, to me, it didn't feel like an, an aggressive comment. It wasn't aggressive. pointed comment, um, but maybe a little bit. Um, yeah, but the thing I, is, is that I think Paul is not necessarily doing that, but I think that's how John reads it. Like, I think Paul yeah. feels like he's driving it for the good of the band and, yeah, and John sure. reads it as you're taking, you know, it's all about you. And, and I, I don't think that, I think they view it differently. And I kind of like watching it. I don't necessarily think of it as a Paul star vehicle at all. But I think to your point that in the end, like I've heard people say that, oh, well, all of a sudden Paul got really nervous about going on the roof. And I think Paul, like any great performer, is probably getting nerves. He says it along the way that I'm getting shy. But Paul McCartney is also the one that stops into pubs and plays at that time and seems to, you know, seems to be the, the biggest Lover of live performances. Yeah, I think he's nervous for the Beatles. Not, not. I don't think he's I do nervous too. as as a I performer personally. Yeah, I think I think he's nervous for the Beatles. Well, that's why he keeps saying like we need to go and like practice and go through this for the next few weeks. Like, yeah, I think you're right. I think in Paul's mind, he is 
creating something in the event that they break up then. Like, I think Paul McCartney is constantly thinking we may, this may be a rebirth and then great, or this may be the last thing that we do. Cause they are really on the yeah. precipice at this point. Yeah. And I think he wants them to go out either way. He wants them to again, exceed expectations and progress, you know? And because they're the Beatles and they have That's this right. golden reputation That's right. Um, to uphold and to, you know, to, to satisfy like the last, and as you say, yeah, I think he is aware. I mean, there's definitely a comment from him early on that, you know, th- this should be the last record we do, you know, if, if, if we don't, yes. If, you know, if this, if, you know, so yeah, um, this should be the last record we do. So yeah, if this is the last record, I mean that we have to finish with something amazing. And yeah. if the Beatles are going to play live, it has yeah. to be great because, you know, it's our first live performance in three years and yes. um, we c- cannot do it badly because that would be a real, like, loss to the sort of reputation, reputation. that yes. they have. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which and, and I think Abbey Road goes to show Paul's commitment to ending properly, you know, in a way that's commensurate with everything that they've done. Um, but I, I think that's a really good insight that he's worried about the Beatles, not himself. No, I mean, Paul musically, there's no, he, he is, he does not suffer from a lack of confidence when it comes to musicianship. And I, yes. I, I don't believe for a minute that he was worried about his own ability p- to perform. <laughs> I believe what he was worried about was yes. the Beatles being the Beatles and, yes, and yes. being the best. And I think that's why when George Martin positions it as a dress rehearsal, he is reassured because it's like, okay, this, if we're not good, this doesn't have to be our big, our one big thing, you know, it kind of, yeah. it, yeah. So he's not like, oh, then he doesn't turn around and go, yeah, but I'm still scared about performing to people. It's like, okay, if we're not good enough, then this was just a practice run. Yeah. You know? Which also um, supports the idea that part of Paul's, Um, reluctance is to do with the performance itself not being big like not being big enough of a thing like his sort of disappointment in this the culmination of this whole thing is just going to be this performance that no one's going to see yeah um you know like that's not at all what he had in mind and I think he can be reassured by the idea that okay well you know, it's not even really a performance. There's yeah, nobody yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no one will ever see it if we don't want anyone to ever yeah. see it. Yeah. Um, and and think of it as a rehearsal to see if we can actually do this and perform as a band and feel great about it. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. You know, then we'll see what's next if if everyone wants to do it again. You know. And and certainly the one thing it achieved was gelling them together and and sort of reigniting the excitement of them as a band, like how good they could be as a band. It reignites mm. John. John wants to perform immediately afterwards, you know. George seems super excited by it, you know. So, uh, you, you know, sometimes I think, I wonder if the payoff was big enough, like in the Let It Be film. I don't know. It's cool. Like for me, in a historical context now, it's super amazing because they are of the UK, the fact that they went and just sang from the rooftops in the UK, in London, yeah. you know, it, it's like there almost couldn't be an, a better payoff 
then, you know, it's almost like a tribute to the swinging 60s of London and yeah, the Beatles' yeah, yeah. dominance of the UK. And like symbolically, it's incredible. They're just playing to the people of London and the UK. And I love it. And it's part of the mythology, you know, yes. like this, this spontaneous rooftop performance, you yes. know, it's so Beatles to do that, you know, to yes. just say, fuck it, we'll just play in the middle of London in the middle of the day yeah. and just, you know, get, you know, get arrested or whatever. Yeah. And when Billy came in and to your point, like Billy did provide a musical glue that I think solved some of their problems. So yes, but as you said, I don't think that Billy being there was necessarily like put them on their best behaviors. They seem to all like Billy. Like it's not like they were, you know. Yeah, the Billy thing's complicated because firstly, you know, Billy's just a great musician, right? Yes, so and a when great you, guy. And a great guy. He's all smiles. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's got a great attitude, obviously. And he's a motherfucker player, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Cool. When you're in the presence of great musicianship and a great musician comes in and starts playing with you and just lights up the room with what they play. Yeah. Like that's going to lift everybody. It's got, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be any problems beforehand. They're going to have a boy no matter what. Yeah, exactly. That's good. That's going to lift you. And, And you can see in that first scene where we hear Billy play, there, you know, everyone's very excited, but it's not like it's been down and awful up to that point, and then Billy comes in and fixes everything. No, that was no, no, no. It's that, just, yes, that's it's what just, I thought. Like watching it the second time, yeah. I was like, wait, they were already good. And that's the thing is like that they were also there. There musically, they were at a point when Billy came in. They were at a point where the songs were actually starting to hit their straps and that's reach. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, a sort of um, uh, cohesiveness and uh, in terms of the arrangements. Yeah. And then it's like the missing link yeah. is Billy musically yeah. because, oh, great. Yeah, you can hear him talking about it right at the start. They, they've got, you know, Paul wants to play piano, then they don't have a bass player, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then they they've have to lose problem. a guitar. It's a problem. They, what, yeah. they clearly have identified from the beginning that they're m- missing one musician yes. if they're going to do yes. this without overdubs. Yeah. So, and, and the problem is the piano thing, right? Yeah. So, okay, they've filled it with a brilliant player who's not just a great musician but also brings a fresh take to their music. He's yeah. black. He's soulful as a player. Yeah. He has a blues gospel jazz kind of yeah. background and it injects a something slightly different to yeah. their sound that they haven't really had before and that's very exciting clearly to them you know not to mention the fact that he jumps on the roads and just it's like the first thing he plays is just in the pocket and perfect and yeah. you can see that the excitement that that so all of those Factors make, yes, the Billy entry really cool and really fun to watch and uh, definitely a moment of lifting in in the film. But that doesn't mean that, you know, Billy came in and fixed everything. I I really think that if you watch it with a critical eye, it's obvious that they were heading in the right direction at that point and that things were going really, really well. And Billy just, just propelled that forward, you know. 
Yeah, I think I think the story that we're we're suggesting is that it's not that everything that things were bad and they got fixed sort of in Savile and then Billy came in and really fixed it. We're suggesting this is the natural progression of a yes, project. Exactly. And that by this point it wasn't moving to Savile Row. Maybe Savile Row helped a little bit because George felt more comfortable there, that they all felt a little more relaxed, but that was already on the progression of this project where things are coming together and then they're getting better. And Billy comes in when there's momentum and he buoys it, you know, so that again, it seems like that's what fixed it, but that's when there's momentum already. Yeah. There's a slight confusion in the way people sort of retell this narrative where, okay, they started at Twickenham and then George walks out and then there's this idea that, well, uh, they had to move to Savile Row, right? Because Twickenham was a disaster, yeah. right? But I think yeah. actually what it, what it really is, is that, you know, George walked out and George had his own issues as we've discussed. Yes. And then, yes, I believe that one of George's like demands or whatever yes, you yes. want to call it was, I don't want to, I, you know, I don't want to be at Twickenham, right? Yeah. So, yeah. okay, whatever the reason for that was, and, yeah. you know, that, you know, obviously there were issues at Twickenham. There were the sound wasn't great, and it was cold and whatever. Um, but okay, so yes, they moved to Savile Row to help make George feel comfortable, yeah. and that and 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 then you, at Savile Row they're back together as a band with a happy jaw, like with a sort of you know a. a what a rejuvenated George for whatever reason, but it's right. it's not because they left Twickenham yes, 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 and went exactly. to Savile Row. It's just part of the whole thing. Is that great? George is back. He's enthusiastic. I mean, I think he was enthusiastic right at the start. That's the problem. Twickenham he was well. enthusiastic, but all of a sudden he they're back in a place that he's more comfortable, and he has asserted his needs, and they've given in to that. So he's right. got kind of this recognition that he's important. Patty comes back. Patty's so back. He's exactly. Happy. That's right. So, so you know, yeah. you, you don't want to conflate the location yes. move yes. with all of these many, many other much more significant factors. Right, right, right. That, exactly. Including just the evolution of the project, the passage of time, yeah. right? Yeah, while yeah, they're yeah. working. Like all of those things are working to create, I guess, the illusion which has been magnified by the mythology over yeah, yeah, 50, 50 years, years of yeah. that moving from Twickenham to Savile Row. Yes, yes, yes. George coming back just solved all the problems and that was right, it. Right. Paul at the beginning is saying like, well, you know, is the, he's asking George Martin, like, you know, is this solvable? Let's, okay, yeah. we'll just start here. He's not sold on it. I think, you know, they just happen to have this space. We can hear Dennis O'Dell talking about, the fact that he's rented this space and just given it to them. So, you know, like this is just like what they had and it was nobody's choice. But me, I love it being filmed there because it looked beautiful, but I understand yeah. that like that's where they should have ended up maybe or gone after they figured out some of the songs, you know, like we talked about right. that. It's almost in reverse order. But anyways, this is the momentum of a project. These are the yeah. way projects go. They get better. They You fix stuff, you improve stuff, it gets momentum. And then that's, how magic gets made you know yeah and let's not forget they came into this project with basically nothing you know they were like the white album is hot off the press right like that yeah they're six they're, weeks old six weeks 
Right. Yeah. You know, 30 songs, right? Like, you you know, so they've come in with with nothing. Paul's got a couple of songs, mostly unfinished. John's got almost nothing. George has got a few things. So, you know, it's going to be a slow start, right? And as we've discussed... You know, the, as we've discussed, it's it's unusual for them to yep. turn up to the studio yes. with unfinished songs, right? So they're also trying to navigate writing the songs, finishing the songs A new with reality. cameras. Yes. You know, it's it's like everything really on January 2nd is, is, unusual. is, is unusual and kind of against them in a way. That's right. Which, you know, I mean, it's their own... It's their own fault, fault. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, lack of planning and all that. But, um, but you know, to, to suggest that this was going to be just perfect from day one, and just they were going to make magic from right. the first day, is just to not understand how how these things work, and to not understand the context in which they were working. You know, yeah, and I think it speaks to how incredibly creative and creatively. Like they can't stand to be creatively bored because this was originally going to be apparently, you know, just playing the songs from the White Album. But they're like, "Yeah, that's done. That sounds, you know, yeah, we've yeah, already exactly. gone past that. Let's now just in write new songs. Like how creatively fertile are they where they yeah. trust the process of we'll just write and perform a whole new album in, you know, two and a half weeks time or whatever it was originally. So I just think that speaks to what a fountain of creativity and genius they were and how much they trusted each other and how well fundamentally they worked together. But overall, I mean, they worked together so incredibly well. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's evident all throughout the film. Um, And I think that's one of the great joys of watching this is that we, get that very rare experience of watching an amazing creative um, force, you know, and watching their creative dynamics, you know. Um, And some of that is sort of obscured almost by all this talk about the problems and the interpersonal dynamics, which is all very interesting. But as I've said to you many times, as a musician, I just can't stop. I can't get enough of watching them work because they work so awesomely well together um, musically. Um, And that is, I think every musician I've spoken to has watched this and just gone, fuck, they were a good band, (laughs) you know, which is like, it just seems crazy to say it because it's so obvious, but, but also not because, you know, in the musician sort of world, there is this kind of tendency sometimes to underplay the Beatles as musicians. There's this yes. sort of idea around that they weren't actually great musicians. Uh, you know, that they were great songwriters and they were really well produced and all that sort of thing and, and they were innovative and all that. But there is this kind of idea floating around that they weren't particularly good musicians. And that that's been, you know... Sort of, yeah, and, uh, and I think something that you said that I noticed was how good John was as a guitarist, but also oh, yeah. how beautiful John's voice is. Yeah, totally. You know, and and these are the things I think that we say. And I, I, I've I've sat it, you know, sort of in in green rooms at gigs and stuff like that since it came out, and sat with other musicians who are not necessarily deep Beatles fans. Yeah. Um, and one of the most common reactions I've heard is shock at what good musicians they were especially Paul especially Paul as a bass player yeah um 
yeah, but 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 everything Ringo as a drummer as well. Yes. But but really all of them, like people, musicians who don't who aren't deep into the Beatles and who don't realize this. Um, it's partly the thing of like, you know, none of them were super flashy, um, real sort of virtuosos in the way that, you know, many other rock musicians, especially later on in the seventies and stuff and eighties, you know, were, were, it became sort of more about fireworks and, Mm. and, you know, that sort of side of musicianship. So I think in the wash up of all of that, you know, people don't think of Ringo Starr as one of the great yeah. drummers and Paul as one of the great bass players and George as one of the great guitarists, certainly not John, you know. Um, but I think that that's the thing is that that, that reputation um, has, you know, I think that this film has been a bit of a shock to some of the musicians out there who subscribed to that idea, not because they're virtuosos, because they're still not virtuosos, but just because they're so good at um, finding the right parts for the songs yes. and and uh, playing what works for the song and what what makes the song better. Well, maybe they're virtuosos you know. in that regard, you know, yeah, exactly. not necessarily on yeah. their instrument, but in terms of creating masterpieces and doing all Correct. that's right, yep, you know. Exactly. That and then I think the other thing for me is like the engine room of Paul and Ringo as a rhythm section, drums and bass, It like I think just – they have the most amazing feel um, together and separately. Uh, and that, I think, is the other thing that really comes through. Well, you know? something that actually came through to me is the relationship that Paul and Ringo have. Did you right. notice that? How much Ringo supports Paul? How much he physically touches Paul? How, how good is that comment that he makes where he where Paul's on the piano and Ringo's like, I could just watch this all day. Oh my like, God, this should, I love this it should so just be much. the film. Yeah. But, but 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 that's amazing because that suggests how much enjoyment they get from just listening to each other, and that's so wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's a beautiful and I, moment when because you think you know, wow, like Ringo's, you know, he's he's been in the band for ten years. He, yeah, 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 he yeah. Know, and he, he still knows loves Paul it. really well, and he can. Yeah. He's still so charmed by Paul just sitting at the. And I mean, to be fair. It's fucking he's amazing to yeah, watch yeah, Paul. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, is he? He Paul is that amazing that it wouldn't get old. To just <laughs> well, sit that's the thing is that you know one shouldn't be bored by watching Paul write "Let It Be" because that. Interestingly, this is a total aside, but there was a quote by George Harrison that he was talking about "Let It Be," and he was talking about Paul at that time, and he was like. He was really reading into the song, and he said he seemed so open and understanding. And he was referring to the Paul that he saw when he was writing and recording Let It Be. So George was reading into Paul based on what Paul was writing at the time. Right. You know, it's interesting that they, you know, they probably don't communicate at that level, but they do. Like George is saying, this is the guy, the guy writing this is the guy that I want to connect with, you know, Mm. that maybe we can have a different level of relationship because he gets it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that is the end of part two. Thank you again for joining us. Part three will be out in the next few days, so please keep an eye out for it. Also, a big thank you to Peter Jackson for creating this wonderful film. Even though I sometimes have some criticisms, I still love your film, and I'm very grateful to have it. 
And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star rating or review. And you can follow us on social media under One Sweet Dream Podcast, or you can email me at onesweetdreampodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. We'll be back very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.